Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. I'm Tim Wheeler. I'm an associate editor and senior writer for uh, Bay Journal, the other Bay, Chesapeake Bay, um, and uh, SEJ's uh, Freedom of Information Task Force chair. Uh, that's why I'm, I'm a, little bit of, a little bit of a fish out of water here. This isn't my territory, uh, typically, but these issues that we deal with um, about how to get information are. And uh, so I'm, this is a learning experience for me as well. Brought together, I think, a, a pretty interesting panel. Uh, and I hope we learn something from you all, too. I think you're probably going to have some things to add to this. Public lands are uh, are everywhere. They're, they're very important, and they're a key focus of this conference. Uh, just as a quick question, to sort of get a gauge for our audience, how many of you have filed a Freedom of Information Act request before? Okay, that's good. How many of you have never filed one? Okay, so there are some. All right, so we're, we're probably in the sweet spot, I hope. We're, um, so we're going to get started here. We only have an hour for this one, so um, we're going to try to move along quickly and give time for questions and sharing. Uh, and our first uh, speaker is uh, Jimmy Tobias, an independent journalist who's written for a number of national publications. Jimmy, um, you've used FOIA, and uh, you can tell us some about your experiences, right? Yeah, hey everyone, I'm Jimmy Tobias. Um, I'm a contributing writer at The Guardian and a contributor at The Nation. And for the last couple of years, I've been doing a lot of FOIA-based reporting, mostly on the Interior Department and its um, various bureaus. Um, and so, yeah, my goal today is really just to convince you to constantly be filing FOIA requests. Because <laughs> uh, it's really a great tool. Um, it, it can have such an enormous impact. And, 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 you know, it will benefit your stories, your readers, and the law itself. Because FOIA is kind of one of those things that I'm afraid if we don't use it, we're going to lose it. Um, and we're already seeing that with the Trump administration. Um, you can go to the next. This is just some facts about FOIA. Um, but if you want to go to the next one, Tim, I'm just going to walk you through a couple things. Um, FOIA is pretty easy. Uh, you know, I, it has a bit of a reputation lately because um, of the difficulties of, of getting information out of agencies like the Interior Department. But, um, oh, you're having a little trouble, huh? Yeah, maybe I should. All right. Well, why don't you go ahead and keep talking? Yeah, I'll keep talking. Um, so basically, one of the really great benefits about FOIA, especially in this time when, you know, very powerful people are talking about fake news and stuff, is that having documents behind your stories really, you know, it, it helps make them harder to assail, harder to undermine. Um, and so, you know, that's a key element. And, and I would say, hold on one second, I'm going to try to, one of the main things, uh, well, I would say with FOIA, it's really easy. Um, what you need is a muckrock account. Have, have, any, have any of you ever used muckrock? Yeah. It, it kind of makes filing for requests like sending an email or sending a text message. You can do, you know, you can do 10 a day if you want to. Um, and that's kind of, here, let me, let me try this real quick, Tim. Can you hold this real quick? Sure. I just want to pull up a couple things because, okay. well, I'm just going to walk you through. I, uh, I started filing FOIAs in October 2017. Um, and I'd never really done it before. I'd never really had a class. But I got a Muckrock account, and I just started kind of peppering the Interior Department with all sorts of requests. And one of my very first requests was for a bunch of calendars. Um, 
and I got a calendar from this guy named Doug Dominic, um, who some of you may know. He's an assistant secretary at the Interior Department, um, very powerful, very close with David Bernhardt, the Interior Secretary. And so um, all I got was his calendar. You know, it took them a few months to get it to me. But when I got it, I read through it, and I found that he had met with this group called the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And the Texas Public Policy Foundation was his former employer. And it's against the rules to meet with your former employer. And so all it was was a calendar. All I asked for was, please send me this guy's calendar since he joined the Interior Department. And so um, they did. I wrote a story. Um, that story, along with a couple others, including by Chris from HuffPo, led to an ethics complaint against him and a bunch of other Interior Department officials, which in turn led to uh, Inspector General's investigation. So this is one of the first stories I ever filed. All I asked for was a calendar. And it led to an, Inspector's General's, an Inspector General investigation into this very powerful guy. And after filing that initial FOIA request, after seeing that he had met with um, his former employer, I followed up, which is the best thing you can do with FOIA. You know, you read through an official's calendar. You see who they're meeting with. So you file more FOIA requests. I want the emails or text messages. Ah, oh, here we go. OK. Oh, beautiful. So there's Muckrock. I would highly recommend you guys explore it, maybe get an account. Um, this is the result I got from my FOIA request uh, for Doug Dominic's calendar. Um, it just said he was meeting with the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which, because I knew a bit about him, I knew was against the rules, um, which led to this story which led in part to this ethics complaint, which led to these, this ins Inspector General's investigation. Um, so it's, it's such a simple tool, but it can have such an enormous impact. And it was just a calendar, you know? Um, and so, oh yeah, and, and so I filed follow-up FOIAs about his meetings and his communications with this group and got more stuff that not only had he met with the group, but he had been exchanging all these emails and asking them, you know, like cheering them on as they sued the Interior Department, all this sort of like unseemly behavior. Um, and so it's a story I continue to follow, um, and I've been following it since like October 2017. So that's just like an example of what you can get from a very simple FOIA request. Um, and so, you know, in terms of like nuts and bolts, to start out, yeah, ask for calendars, ask for texts and emails, uh, keywords between officials and their colleagues or officials and various groups that they might be interacting with. Um, get ideas from headlines. So for instance, William uh, Perry Pendley, who's going to be speaking here on Friday, there was a big story the other day that he has a 17-page long recusal list, you know, which is kind of embarrassing. And so I just went through that recusal list and filed a FOIA request for his communications with every single group that was on the recusal list. Who knows if he's talked to any of them, but if he has, you know, that's against the rules, so he'll be in trouble. Um, uh, um, constantly be filing new FOIAs. I try to aim for like 20 to 30 a month. Um, so like, whenever you see something that piques your interest, just file a request about it, you know? And that's the way you'll get results, because it can take time, it can take months, but if you're always filing, eventually you're gonna get something good. Um, and then the people who work at the agencies, the actual civil servants who are the FOIA officers, are your friends and they're helpful. So they're the people you want to like, make nice with and talk to if you've got questions about how to file. But it's the political appointees who are usually the troublemakers. Um, and then just a couple other things. There's this thing called layering, which I heard Eric Lipton at the New York Times talk about. And 
it, the idea is that you send the same request to like a bunch of different agencies. So for example, hypothetically say that a corporate lobbyist has become the interior secretary and he is rolling back endangered species protections for fish in California to benefit his former clients. Yeah, I know, outlandish. Um, so you send a request to his office, you send a request to the secretary, to the assistant secretary's office. You send a request to the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service. You send a request to the regional director of the Fish and Wildlife Service in California. And you just work your way down the list, kind of asking for the same things. And hopefully, eventually, you, a picture will emerge of how like the chain of command works and like who is pulling the strings and things like that. And it's, it's a really good way to like get information out. Because maybe the Interior Department headquarters will stonewall you, but the regional office will be real fast about it or something. Um, and the last thing really is try to find a good pro bono attorney. <laughs> uh, I've sued them five times now and um, I'm a freelancer so I couldn't afford a lawyer uh, to, to sue for me. But there's some really great FOIA attorneys out there who are like in it for the, you know, for the cause. So identifying those people is really great. Um, and the last thing I'll say, there's all these exemptions and you're going to get redactions and it's going to be really annoying and it's, they're probably going to be illegitimate half the time. So always appeal. Always appeal. Um, and that's, there's no like secret sauce for appealing, but uh, just tr try to read the law, understand it, and always appeal and, and you'll probably get something good. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Jimmy. Well, I think we've solved the technical difficulties that okay. here in my head mostly. Um, I guess one question I would ask you, Jim, when you appeal, do you actually get something that you weren't getting on the initial, or do you have to go straight to the lawsuit after that? Sometimes, um, yeah, I had this interesting encounter in Utah like last summer where I had seen that these people in the governor's office had been sending um, policy proposals to their to like right-wing groups that operate in the state that have influence in Washington. And so I FOIA'd for the documents they'd been sending them and they sent me a completely redacted document. Um, but because they had sent it to, pri it was like a completely blacked out. But because they had sent it to private groups outside of the government, they had no like legal basis to actually redact it. And so I went back, I talked to some lawyers in Utah, they helped me initiate an appeals process and eventually I got the document redacted. So it really just depends on the case, but you can get stuff for sure. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, well, that um, brings to mind, speaking of, of getting uh, legal help, I want, I want to mention and make a small plug. If you care about this issue a lot, FOIA and how to use it, there's going to be another session that I'm also moderating on Friday where we're going to hear a, a presentation about a really interesting initiative to offer free legal help to journalists and news outlets around the country uh, by Reporters Committee. Um, so, um, you know, please uh, think about coming if you can. Um, FOIA is one thing. Sometimes there's a lot of data that's sort of hiding in plain sight. It's right there on those websites. Uh, if you just know where to find it or you have enough persistence and time to, to get there. And our next speaker, Laura Williams with um, Pew Charitable Trust, has, uh, they have done some very interesting work lately with BLM, which is a kind of important organization here. And uh, uh, Laura, why don't you tell us about what, uh, what you did and maybe walk us through how you did it. I'll be your uh, manager here. Great. 
Thanks. Um, yeah, so I think folks might have this chart um, that was passed around. And so um, I'm going to talk a little bit about what we did here with this chart. And then I'm also going to um, walk through the Bureau of Land Management's e-planning site. Um, has anyone ever used or accessed the BLM's e-planning site before to look at? OK, OK, cool. So that's I'll walk through it. But um, yeah, as um, as Tim said, a lot of this stuff is hiding in plain sight, but it is not always easy to find exactly where it is. Um, first, just a little bit of background. Um, we, Pew has been tracking um, Bureau of Land Management resource management plan revisions for a number of years across the West. And so starting in May of this year, um, the first plan, draft plans under this administration started to be released. And so between May of this year and just a couple months ago, um, we saw six draft plans and one final plan that have come out under this administration. And so one of the things we always do is look to see, you know, what do these plans contain? Um, and we just started pulling out the numbers from the documents, from the environmental impact statements. Um, and so the chart, which is actually, you know, I'm going to, can you go forward, I think, two slides? And then I'll go back. Okay, perfect. So, um, so across the top are those the names of the plans. Um, so there's the Bering Sea Western Interior uh, in Alaska, Lewistown in Missoula, plans in Montana, Four Rivers in Idaho, uh, the Southeastern Oregon plan, the Eastern Colorado plan, and then um, the Incompagre. So these are the different plans that have been released. And then we just started pulling out the numbers. So um, one of the things that the agency is required to do is to analyze um, areas of critical environmental concern. And so they have a criteria by which they look at lands that have special um, natural uh, values, cultural values, paleontological, fish and wildlife, um, and which of those places need special management to protect those values. Um, and they issue reports that show their findings for which of these places need to have that special management. And then when they release their draft management plan, they'll have, of course, there a number of different alternatives within that plan um, that, uh, you know, one will be the, the no action alternative that's the status quo, and then they'll have, they're supposed to have um, a, a spectrum of alternatives that cover various kinds of management. And what we started to realize is that although the agency found a lot of places qualified to be areas of critical environmental concern. They weren't including hardly any in their preferred alternative of the draft plan. And in some cases, they were actually going back to 30-year-old um, you know, ACECs and proposing to eliminate them entirely. In fact, we saw that pretty much across the board. Um, so that's one of the really troubling trends that has been happening with these draft plans. Um, Another piece is lands with wilderness characteristics. And, you know, again, um, BLM is required to inventory their lands to see which lands qualify or which lands have wilderness characteristics or are primarily intact in their natural state, um, are available for um, primitive and unconfined recreation. They have a, a manual that they go through to identify these lands. And the agency, in some cases, found millions of acres qualify and have wilderness characteristics, but when the preferred alternatives came out, um, zero or hardly any of those lands were being included to be managed to protect those, um, those values. Um, and so, you know, again, this is across 20 million acres or so across the West that we're looking at um, where this has been happening. 
Um, just briefly, the percentages on the next slide. Um, when we look at these all together, 92% um, of existing areas of critical environmental concern are being that the agency themselves found to to continue to qualify to need that special management to protect those, protect those values. 92% um, of those areas are being of the acreage of those areas is being proposed to be removed in in these preferred plans. Um, you know, less than 1% of the lands with wilderness characteristics that the agency itself identified are being proposed to be protected in the preferred alternatives. So um, it's a pretty bleak trend that we're seeing. Um, and it's not, you know, the story is still unfolding. I think we've, you know, a lot of these plans, the next step will be the final plan will come out. And so we'll see where, where the decisions go. And then there's also, um, plans that are forthcoming. So in addition to the ones kind of on the list, um, we're expecting other plans will come forward in Alaska, New Mexico, um, possibly Nevada as well, and other places. Um, and I'm gonna go back to the first slide, if you would. And just to, to note this as well, um, this, this planning process as well as the evaluation of areas of critical environmental concern, the inventorying of lands with wilderness characteristics is all um, required by the Federal Land Management Policy Act. So this is, there's a statutory framework under which BLM is operating that they, um, that they do these plans and these revisions. So, so what I wanted to walk through now was just kind of how we got these numbers and where we found them. So because certainly this is something that um, anyone can do. You don't have to do FOIA for this. This is all um, in plain sight. So you can go forward a couple slides there. Um, so yep. So the Bureau of Land Management maintains this. Um, it's called e-planning site. Um, it is not the most. And actually, if you can just click on that link. Um, it is, it's a little clunky for anyone who's used it. Um, there's a couple different ways you can kind of find things. Um, so if, I did include some screenshots in case we can't get to it. I, but, okay. Well, I'll um, maybe go to the next slide then and we can just go from there. So there's kind of two ways. Once you're, once you're in this website, there's kind of two ways you can find things. So there's a map feature where you can zoom in and there's little bubbles that will pop up and you can click on them to see. So if you, there we go. So if you know, um, if you're looking for, you know, information or data from a certain area, a geographical area, you can go to this map, but you don't, maybe you don't know the name of the, of the planning area or something like that. You can zoom in and try and find it that way. Um, this is pretty imperfect, like sometimes, for example, in Colorado, if you're looking for the Eastern Colorado Resource Management Plan, the bubble is like in Canyon City because that's where the field office actually is, so it's not always intuitive. But this is one way to, to navigate and try and find um, where some of the documents are. And then there's also a text search, which should be the next, if you just click one more time there. Um, where you can type in, you can search by state, you can search by year, um, which is, the fiscal year, not necessarily the calendar year, which, um, but then you can look through it that way and try and pull up specific documents. So once, 
I'll just keep talking and hopefully it'll it'll catch up. But um, and then once you get into like the specific documents, so in our case we were looking at the resource management plan. There's usually like a landing site for each resource management plan. Um, it'll always have some kind of update at the top, a banner that tells you whether, for, for example, the plan is under a current um, comment public comment period. Um, there's usually kind of a table of contents along the left side that helps you kind of navigate to which documents you might be looking for. So if you're looking for the full environmental impact statement, you can click on that and download it from there. Um, and then once you're in those, here we go. Great. So that's the, kind of the landing site. You can see that um, kind of table of contents along the left. And then if you go to documents and reports, it'll have another another basically list of links where you can download each individual report. Um, my best advice for navigating those environmental impact statement reports, which are you know thousands of pages in some cases, um, is to try to find the the tables, the comparison tables, to, to at least initially navigate those documents and figure out, okay, here's the no action alternative. I know this is what I'm comparing everything to. And then you can kind of look through within those tables to figure out what are they proposing to do um, under this revision. Um, and then they'll also have acreage numbers, things like that, maps and so forth, which is on there. Um, so I think I'll just stop there. And it's, you know, like I said, it's, it's, all, it's all in here. It's all on e-planning um, if, if you just dig a little bit more. Okay. So Laura will give you a good sort of insight into how to sort of look through some of the voluminous information that's on the government websites to try to get ideas for stories. There's no substitute for actually interviewing people, but it gives you data, uh, helps you sort of confirm that there may be a bigger picture here. Uh, there's also a lot of nonprofit groups out there that can be very helpful in terms of uh, both providing you with data, uh, helping you sort of navigate some of these agencies, uh, and even you know talk to some inside sources. And Tim Whitehouse, the executive director of Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, is one of those uh, individuals in one of those organizations. Tim, you want to well, start talking, and I'll get try to get your slides. Up Great, here. thank you. Um, how many of you have heard of Peer, as we call ourselves? Okay great. Um, I've been the executive director since February, and I come from a background uh, in the federal government and nonprofit management. And I just want to say the first thing um, I learned coming to Peer, I've known Peer, I've tracked Peer for a number of years, I've had interactions with Peer. Um, but the first thing I learned is 99% of what um, happens uh, is never seen in, in public. Um, we are working day in and day out with uh, local, federal, state, and occasionally tribal uh, employees of their governments, um, navigate uh, really ethical environmental issues they're dealing with. And, um, and those people all have stories, and some of those people uh, do not want those stories told. Um, and we work with them on maintaining their confidentiality. Uh, some of those people do want their stories told, and we help them find sources. Um, and sometimes their names are attached to those stories, and sometimes they're, they're not. Um, and so that's, that was my experience with Peer, is how much work they do, and also how often they work uh, with journalists, and how often journalists call us looking for stories, which is almost every day. So maybe the next slide. Um, so I think um, since most of you have heard of uh, 
here, just for those of you that haven't, um, we've been around since 1992. Uh, it was an offshoot of um, a forestry issue in Oregon where a forester um, was involved in writing a biological opinion for clear cutting um, and was told how to write the biological opinion. And what he was seeing in Oregon was very similar to what he had been seeing in Latin America and he refused to do that and uh, consequently wanted to create an organization that provided support for public employees who cared about the environment. You can go to the next one. So we, um, we blow the whistle, we shine the light. Um, you know, we work to improve laws and regulations, and more recently, uh, we've been working a lot with other groups, really making an effort to work with local groups to reflect the, the flavor of the issues uh, locally as opposed to nationally. So most of our uh, employees we work with, we work, we're intake driven, so we really only work on issues that public employees or retired employees bring to us. Um, so a lot of times groups may call and say, can you work on this issue? And it's, it's no, we can't, because we work uh, with people inside the government or people who have recently retired or have very strong knowledge of what's happening in the government. Uh, we have um, traditionally natural resource land use issues. The last uh, decade, a lot of EPA issues, Environmental Protection Agency issues and um, more and more local issues. Uh, we also have, um, unfortunately, a lot more issues coming from agencies like the Center for Disease Controls and NOAA, which generally had been regarded as um, pretty far removed from a lot of the politics, and that's no longer the case. So in terms of mining for public records, I think some of this has been mentioned by Jimmy, but um, so most of our um, information comes from insiders. So when we send a FOIA, we know what we're asking for. And we sometimes ask more broadly because we want to protect our source. Um, and so we work with our sources on how to construct that FOIA and how to ask for it in a way that protects them but gets the information. Um, we also um, submit FOIAs to different branches, um, different agencies. Um, and we do that strategically to see what we can get. Uh, and oftentimes, until recently, uh, we'd get different information depending on the agency, and certain agencies would redact certain things that other agencies didn't. Um, we litigate uh, constantly, so uh, after Judicial Watch and ACLU, I think we're the third most active FOIA litigant and FOIA-er, however that, whatever that verb is. Um, in, in the states. So I, I thought what I'd do, since we are really personality driven, um, some of our staff members have a great deal of knowledge, uh, either because they're working with people or because they've just been doing this a long time about information and data on federal lands. I'm relatively new to this, so I don't. Uh, but I did think it might be useful to talk about some of the trends and some of the stories we're seeing from these intake um, intakes we're getting and from some of the FOIAs we're doing. And so the big trend I think you're all dealing, we're all dealing with now, is the collapsing of federal transparency. And uh, there's a lot of different ways to frame this. Um, 
that's sort of how we frame it. Um, and lately, the rise of the dark ages, so depending on what direction we go, but certainly there's a lot of damage being done to information, and there's a lot of work uh, that journalists and NGOs have to do to counter that. So we see veiled decision-making, uh, particularly on public lands, decision-making is more veiled than ever before due to a number of factors. Uh, we hear about decentralizing the federal government. That's not happening. It's being centralized. Uh, people are being decentralized, um, but from inside sources and from a lot of the FOIAs we're sending out and from a lot of the decision-making trees we're trying to follow, uh, things are being decided in Washington by a few people. And you see that through the appointment of um, temporary acting officials in the Department of Interior. You see a complete breakdown in um, management structures and complete lack of oversight in the uh, by the Senate of the executive branch. So next. Um, so I would, um, you know, one area that we've been looking a lot at through FOIAs is scientific integrity policies. And uh, we, we found that those are not uh, really being followed. Uh, we can kind of skip this, but um, we're getting mischaracterization of, <laughs> that's a subtle hint. Um, and, and one area I wanted to th uh, throw out because um, you've heard from Laurel a lot about uh, BLM. And so people really need to look at our national parks. Um, and there is, uh, there's supposed to be general management plans, so like BLM, but uh, they're not. Uh, about half the units don't have any more general management plans. And what that means is uh, those areas are rife, more rife uh, for commercialization, for ad hoc decision making, for breakdown, and, um, and how our parks are supposed to be run. And there are some examples uh, there, and that's uh, stories that we're hearing more and more from people in the National Park Service that are quite, I, I don't think there's another word other than disgusted by what's, what's happening now. It's not unique to the Trump administration, it certainly predates that, but we're seeing an acceleration in that. Is there anything else there? So range management um, and overgrazing, there are, and I put some links there, there are some very good databases uh, there. There's uh, a number of NGOs that have uh, great experience in that. And I did want to put, put that out there because particularly when you look at the federal lands and our climate issues, they're related now. And overgrazing uh, issues are huge in terms of degradation of land and actually giving away uh, money to you know powerful interest groups. So there's some links up there that have links in them. Uh, are these slides on the internet eventually? They are not there now, but they will be. Okay, yeah. so you can just go go back to these if you want to connect into some data sources that are publicly available or get contacts from from any stories you may want to do or learn more about that issue. Okay, thank Thanks. you, Tim. Um, and you're mentioning the uh, grazing issue is a, a wonderful segue to. Uh, I wanted to point out that the the latest issue of SE Journal. Um, has uh, the, the main story on that is about the whole grazing on public lands issue. Joe Davis has uh, generated a lot of helpful links there and background about the issue, so you can, you can draw from that. Uh, I did want to sort of put in another plug for another conference session. <laughs> uh, 
public lands are very important. Uh, we all love to have you know encouragement, and we would love to have resources to cover these things. In case you did not know, the SEJ's Fund for Environmental Journalism is currently entertaining proposals for reporting grants to cover public lands issues. Uh, and they're having a pitch slam at the very reasonable hour, 7.30 on Saturday morning. Uh, if you want to come in and make a pitch, we hope maybe you'll get enough inspiration from this to do it. If you can't quite get up that early or you're not ready to make a pitch, there, I believe, is more time beyond that before uh, the deadline for filing. So think about that. The grants are quite, uh, quite helpful in terms of travel and, and research and, and uh, preparation of your story. Um, so, we want to be sure there's enough time for you all to ask questions and share your, your experiences. So we're going to open it up now. Reporters uh, and SCJ members, take priority. Please identify yourself and uh, ask a question. Yes, sir. Okay, so the question, I assume this might be for Tim or maybe Jimmy, is are you seeing a, you know, a trend of officials trying to avoid paper trails that are amenable to FOIA. And if they are, then how do you identify that? How do you smoke it out? Tim, you want to take a crack at that? I'll be real quick. Um, so we're hearing this more and more from uh, individuals in the field and um, that decisions are being made in Washington and they're being um, relayed by phone. We have hundreds of FOIAs out there. Um, the process now is slowing down greatly. Um, and so that's what we're hearing by word of mouth and um, working hard on that, so. Jim? Yeah, I just say that. I think they, I mean, you know, some degree of business has to be done in writing. And I think it's just the agencies have become so good at stonewalling FOIAs for so long or using exemptions uh, that make it much more difficult to get um, your hands on documents. Like the Fish and Wildlife Service, for instance, I got my hands on like a leaked copy of this guidance that basically was sent out to all the Fish and Wildlife Services in the country that said, we're going to start having a really strict interpretation of the deliberative process privilege exception so that we're not, we're not going to let anything out that, you know, that we don't want to get out. And so they're just being really strict and trying to cover the tracks. And I'm sure there's lots of phone calls, too, and stuff like that. One sort of a caveat that you mentioned this when you in your presentation, Jimmy, is you, you filed a state public records request, and that's another avenue. Oftentimes, they're conveying, communicating these decisions to state officials. Depending on what the state public records law is, you might be able to smoke out some bit of information there that you can leverage to get something else. And if you're not familiar with your state public records law, Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press has a, a real good state-by-state website that sort of explains how it works. Other questions? Yes, here. Uh, identify yourself. I'm sorry, Rico Moore, but for your answer. Mm -hmm. um, did you guys ever find any kind of uh, useful information comes from like FOIA, FOIA requesting your communications about your FOIA request? Yeah, well, I've one out that's like that. That they're, they're kind of fun at the very least. You know, sometimes like you'll get the press office talking shit about reporters behind their backs or something. <laughs> I, I know Chris has seen that. Um, but yeah, I think that is useful, and that's how people have uncovered that these political appointees are, you know, putting on an extra layer of review on FOIA requests and making it more difficult. Another question over here. Um, yeah, Judy Caller yeah, okay. with the Denver Post, mm -hmm. um, and I appreciate the work that Pew is doing looking at um, resource management planning. One thing 
I hear a lot from people is forget public input. It's just really going down the toilet. I mean, um, the shortened uh, public comment periods, uh, recently talking about the Uncompadre um, resource management plan, they just pulled out the alternative solution out of thin air and all the people could do is protest. Uh, they couldn't even comment on it really. So is anybody tracking that and what are some of the, um, I guess, what are some of the solutions to that? What can the public do? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Laurel? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a, really, it's a really good question. There, you know, there are these processes built in, public comment period and so forth, but um, we, we know from looking at earlier drafts of these plans that in many cases, um, public comments not being considered because we can see the later, the later iteration and, and things have not changed. Even in, um, and I'll use Eastern Colorado as an example where um, areas of critical environmental concern and lands with wilderness characteristics were two of the most, um, when you looked at the numbers of public comments, they were two of the, the highest numbers of public comments. Um, but then, again, when we've seen the, when we've seen the preferred alternative, uh, did not reflect those public comments um, at all, really. Uh, in fact, went, went the other way. So it, it is tricky. And I think, you know, there's, that's where, you know, hopefully coverage of this stuff can help, given that um, public comments are not not being listened to, look, it seems like. Question here? Antonia Uhas, freelance. Um, Tim, I'm wondering if you can talk more about um, what you're hearing about the decision to move BLM to Grand Junction within this context of the outsourcing people, but insourcing decision-making. Yes, yeah, so there's been a lot of movement of federal officials. It's a very effective way to to really harm a federal agency. You know, EPA moved one of their scientific labs from Houston to Oklahoma. You know, the, the, it was underreported, but their lab was um, focused on the oil and gas industry around Houston. So um, moving BLM headquarters to Grand Junction, um, you know, is designed to weaken the agency uh, decision-making process and leave, really leave it in Washington with political people. That's sort of our take on it, and it's happening in um, USDA also. It's happening, uh, talk at EPA about it happening, and they've been moving, thinking about that. So. Mm -hmm. Question, I'm supposed to repeat the questions, I just remembered, and your question is, if I get it right, is do you see any evidence that there's a strategy behind this to, to enable more leasing? Um, my opinion and our take from talking to people is it's all about the extractive industries. That's really what BLM is about now, um, and that any pretense of balance is gone. Yeah. Uh, let's see, let's call a new person here. Oh, go ahead. Uh, the question was, when did you file the request for Doug Dominic? In like October 2017. And that... Yeah, so the question is like if, if you're seeing if I see a lot of like federal officials putting kind of FOIA warnings on the bottom of their emails and yeah, they're all over the place. Um, and it's not just the political pointies either, it's a lot of the um, the civil servants as well. But you see that a lot for sure. Question is how do you keep track of them if you file a lot? 
It's, that's definitely a challenge. Muckrock helps because you can kind of like, you know, they're all in one place and you can kind of organize them by date. Or like say you are filing for a specific official, you filed a bunch for one official, you can like type that person's name in and see all the ones you filed. Um, but usually when I get them back, I try to read them pretty quick or at least scan them to see if there might be anything of use. And a lot of times there's not that much... You know, and they're they're sent constantly sending like newsletters and stuff, or like, um, but just trying to go back every once in a while, review everything, read them when they come in, and yeah. a lot of times, like something I meant to mention before is if you're working on like a feature story or something, or you have something you want to work on next year, like now is a great time to put in the FOIA request. You know, like if there's some big project you've been dying to do, like file your FOIA request now because it's probably going to take a while. But then when you get back to that story, when, when that's your focus, then you'll have things ready and you, know, you kind of focus on the FOIAs as you, come, you, know, as you move from story to story, depending on, on um, what, what you're interested in in the moment. One thing, you deal a lot with interior, I deal with EPA a lot. EPA has a portal where you can actually see who's filing requests. Does the interior do that too? Yeah, that's yeah. kind of helpful sometimes. Yeah. And if nothing else, you can see what's already been granted so that you know what you have a right to see. So the $64,000 question, if, if the information is getting more scarce or, or more closely guarded, how do you ferret it out? I would say it's uh, building relationships, um, but, but it's getting really hard. So even at EPA, we were being given public information that was in databases that was quite difficult for the public to get. I mean, it's hard to figure out. And I think they figured it out because there were hundreds of people within the government that had access to that database and they scaled it back to, we hear, three to five people. So um, it's, it's getting really hard and we um, really rely on sources and very aggressive FOIAs, but even FOIAs slowing down. And we just got... Um, I'm not a, uh, we, we just got a request. We normally send FOIAs every year if anyone's in the Midwest to Region 5 on enforcement actions. We've always gotten it very quickly. This year they declined it. We're going to appeal it, uh, the information, because we didn't show it was in the substantial public interest. Um, these are just numbers. So this would be we took five actions in the state of Michigan on Class Two underground oil and gas wells. So that's no longer, in their opinion, in the substantial public interest. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult. Okay. I think we've got time for maybe one more question. Oh, Megan? Yeah, who had it over here? Um, will you please put your uh, PowerPoint presentations online or someplace where we can get access to all those long URLs? Definitely. Uh, there's already a, uh, if you look on the agenda, the online agenda, there's a link on there called resources. I put up these guys' contact information and a little, little information about some of the reports and reporting they have generated. Uh, and we will add these uh, PowerPoint uh, presentations to that same web page. All right? Thank you. Yes. Uh, yeah, how do you use Muckrock? You, you set up an account. Um, it'll kind of automatically generate um, most of the language, except, for, like, you know, you have to type in what you're looking for, but it'll kind of generate the language you want. You send it. You know, you there's a pull-down box where you select the agency. You can send it to multiple agencies. And then it's just kind of there, and, like, it almost looks like a Gmail 
you know, like your Gmail or whatever, you know, you, you just see like line by line the different requests you filed. So it's a good way to keep track of it because otherwise, it would, I mean, I, I don't think I'd be able to file any FOIA requests if I had to mail them all individually, um, like old-fashioned ways. And then just to your question, I would say one way, say you're like not a big fan of the current political leadership of an agency, one way to kind of hold them accountable is to constantly be filing FOIA requests. Um, I don't know. <laughs> That's all. Well, you always want to push back against those who don't want to give you what you want, right? Megan, did you have something you wanted to share? Yeah, just a little brief announcement, and um, uh, please go ahead and thank the panel. So, before you.